It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, I want to give you the <clears throat> Daily Thunder forecast. Uh, we, we, again, we've been trying to do this forecast thing, <laughs> and we'll, we'll see how long we keep it, I guess, but uh, just kind of bring some updates of some things that are happening. And what I want to just kind of highlight uh, is for those who've been listening to the series that Eric has been walking through in World War I or my series here in Soul Drift, uh, obviously we're finishing those up this week. And next week we're kind of going to do something different uh, and kind of special uh, in part because we're going to be switching around our studio. Uh, so because of our remodel project, uh, we have to move our studio. So we're kind of in this weird dilemma of, okay, we just finished this series but now we're moving our studio that we film in between the seasons. And so, anyway, next week we're going to do some other stuff, and we'll explain that then. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of give a highlight or something to just put a bug in everyone's ear, <clears throat> that, that if you've been following the series through, and you're like, I really love just the content of Ellerslie, <clears throat> then I just want to hint at the idea uh, that... All next summer and fall, we have semester seasons going on. We'll have some semesters, the five weeks and the one weeks. Um, but this spring, <clears throat> we are relaunching our Ellerslie online program. And one of our plans is in this remodel season, um, not just our campus, but our, some of our systems and, and whatnots. Uh, we're going to completely re, I should say completely, our plan, God willing, got to say those things uh, just in case this all doesn't happen. Uh, but the plan is, <clears throat> is that we're going to film the entire Ellerslie online curriculum over again. And uh, we filmed it during COVID. And it was like one of those things where we're like, okay, let's just create an online version. And so we kind of came in here and had some funny, goofy lighting. And there was a lot of oddities that happened. And thinking about refilming, I don't know how many hours it is of content, but lots, uh, lots of content. The idea is always like, ah, but we have decided that when, once we move the studio over there, that we're going to go in and just start refilming all of our Ellerslie online material over again. So at least it'll be better lighting. It'll be in the new studio. So all that to say is if you're interested, whether or not you can come out here, uh, you can take the online version, which is not nearly as fun as what you guys are getting. No one said amen. But amen, amen. Uh, in case you can't hear it on the podcast, everyone nodded and said amen. <clears throat> well, Three people did, but, uh, but anyway, it's just a neat way to uh, link arms with what we're doing, and if you love the kind of material and content uh, that you hear in Daily Thunder, I think the semester stuff is far richer than even in Daily Thunder. Daily Thunder is just a fun, I think it's fun for Eric and I because it's, it's always new, it's always fresh, it's always a wonderful pressure in our lives to have content, <laughs> which, is, which is actually really good to do uh, for the soul. Uh, but there's something rich about systematically just walking through the truth of Scripture and just seeing the beauty of, of His Word come alive. And obviously the best way to do discipleship is in person, but if for someone who's unable to be here or someone who wants to retake uh, some of this content and just be freshing their lives or refreshing their lives with truth, the online version could be a good opportunity. So that's all going to come out probably January-ish, the end of January, early February. So just to put a bug in everyone's ear, just know that it is, God willing, coming soon. That's fun. Uh, we've been in this series called Soul Drift, 
And one of the things I've done over the last, <clears throat> I don't know, was it been 27 episodes, is I keep hearkening back to certain books. And I just wanted to give you, if you, I, I have probably read well over a dozen, I don't know, 20 books or something in throughout the series, just in preparation and, and looking up different things and uh, let alone just the normal study stuff that I do when I consult, you know, 30, 40 commentaries, all, the, all, those, all those kind of things as I'm studying. But what's interesting is there were three books that just kind of came to the surface that I would just say, if you would like to take this idea of idolatry and adultery from a biblical perspective even deeper, here are three great introductory books that I would recommend. One is Gospel Treason. I actually think it's one of the best books on the idea of idolatry, and I barely even mentioned anything from the book. But it's basically talking about this idea. It's uh, by Brad Bigney. But he's talking about looking at the issues of idolatry in our heart through the lens of the gospel and realizing that it is the gospel that is the solution to every one of our idolatrous problems, which is something that we have been talking about. Uh, we spent several episodes kind of right in the middle of this series, and I mentioned this idea of sipping salt water. And I love just that concept, but if you start to sip salt water, it makes you thirstier and thirstier, and eventually it will kill you. And so if you missed any of those episodes, it could even be fun to go back. It's like right in the middle of the series. We had one called Sipping Salt Water, and we had a few that just kind of were in this idea where I was giving several quotes from the book. But it's just a great, simple book talking about, okay, what are some of the idols of our hearts? And recognizing that even sometimes good things, if you start to sip on them and you replace Jesus, it will actually come and end up destroying our lives. So that could be a great resource if you're interested and then <clears throat> throughout the First Corinthians 10 series that I was doing just these last few weeks, um, I kept mentioning a book by John Juman called Recognizing Idolatry. And it, basically, he's just walking through First Corinthians chapter 10. But it's a great little book in terms of not only understanding First Corinthians chapter 10, but also just this idea of how is Paul dealing with this issue of idolatry. Uh, the reason I'd even start with these three books is they're not academic. Uh, they're not heavy theological kind of books. In other words, you don't have to have a dictionary open next to you when you read them. I don't know if you ever read those kind of Christian books where you're almost like, um, we're, we're down here. And you're like speaking highfalutin stuff. And sometimes those, those kind of academic type of Christian books are rather hard and they're rather boring to weed through. And these three are actually delightful to read. They're easy to read. And yet I think they're richly wonderful in just this area of dealing with idolatry in our hearts and allowing Jesus to be the solution. So just wanted to mention, since this is our last episode, if you'd like to take any of this deeper, I'd recommend uh, one of those three books if you'd like just to keep going uh, with the series. I haven't mentioned this at all. I've been alluding to it throughout the entire series, but I want to give you a few reminders. The subtitle of this series, it's, it's Soul Drift, the, the subtitle is Discovering your heart's greatest longing. And I've been saying this probably every episode. <clears throat> I just haven't used that language. But do you know what our heart's greatest longing is? Jesus. And again, this is just some review. But if I could summarize Deuteronomy 6, which is what we kind of spent the first third of the series walking through, is looking at this statement by Moses called the Shema in Deuteronomy if I could summarize all the stuff that we went through just in that part of the series, it's, it's this idea. It's you shall love God with all that you are and all that you have. <clears throat> that is our greatest longing. 
our greatest longing is Jesus and that we are to love him with absolutely everything we are and everything we have. Do you realize that that, maybe I'll say it this way, he and he alone is the only thing that will truly satisfy. And though he has given us good and gracious gifts, ultimately it is himself, the person, that is the fullness of our joy, as Psalm 1611 says. That he is our peace, as Ephesians 2.14 says. That, that he is the reality of all things that we need for life and godliness, as 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says. That, that he is what we desperately need. He is our heart's greatest longing. But we have a problem that we've been talking through this entire series, and it's this idea of idolatry, or even adultery. And the way that we've been defining this is looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. And again, I, I know this is review, but you realize that any time that I turn to anything, even good stuff, even religious stuff, and it becomes a replacement in my life for Jesus, that it, it becomes the authority, it becomes the center of my life, it becomes the affection of my heart. Whether it is good, bad, or ugly, whether it's religious or not, the moment I put anything in my life as the replacement for Jesus, that has become an idol in my life. Which is why we need to walk in repentance. Which is why we need to turn, return to our heart's greatest longing, which is Christ. Uh, listen to what A.W. Tozer said about this idea of idolatry. He said, the essence of idolatry is the entertaining, entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. Isn't that an interesting statement? That the essence of idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are actually unworthy of him. That either I have diminished him or I've elevated something else. And therefore, I'm actually not seeing or thinking God of God properly. He said this as well. He said the human heart is idolatrous and will worship anything it can possess. Do you realize that we have a propensity toward idolatry? We have a propensity to be obsessed with all the things of the world other than Jesus. We have a propensity to take an easy, comfortable, wide road rather than progress in this very difficult, narrow path that leads to life. Which is why we desperately need Jesus. Which is why the solution for our greatest need is Jesus. He is the solution, but he is that greatest need itself. He is the greatest fulfillment of all that we, all that we need on the very first episode, I, I mentioned broken cisterns. I love this passage. And I just thought it just may behoove us to return back and look at this passage in Jeremiah. So if, if you missed the very first episode, I, I talked about Jeremiah. There's a statement that God gives Jeremiah that I think is so profound, not only for Jeremiah's day, but even maybe more so for our day. Uh, look at what Jeremiah 2.13 says. God speaks through Jeremiah and says, my people have committed two evils. We're not talking about the world. We're not talking about the pagans. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about God's people. And God says, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Now, if you want to flesh this out even more, you can go back and listen to the first episode again. But it's interesting, God says that his people, us, 
have done two things. Now, again, the context is this is during the time of Jeremiah. This is the time where Jerusalem is about to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the people are living in this idolatrous lifestyle. And so God is using Jeremiah saying, look, you guys, you guys are walking in sin. But it's interesting that God's summary statement for the idolatry and adultery that his people were living in is this idea of living water fountains and broken cisterns. And I still think this is a great analogy for the days in which we live. Uh, could you imagine? <clears throat> Here is what God says. Is he is a living fountain. It's like this endless aquifer. There's always water springing forth. It's always fresh. It's always clean. It's always pure. It's always rich. And it's always available. But God says his people have done something. They have rejected that fountain of living waters. And instead, they have created, they've hewn out, they've dug out cisterns. Now, if you go to Israel, there's all these cisterns that you can actually visit. Uh, there were small household cisterns, right? They can hold, you know, probably several gallons of water. So as the rain would come in certain seasons of the year, it would catch the water and it would fill up and you would actually have some water reserve. But most of the towns, if they didn't have natural wells or a river nearby, they would create massive cisterns. And so in certain places of Israel, you can go around and you can actually walk in to these cisterns. Uh, there is a cistern in Masada that can hold well over a million gallons of water. Uh, they have found dozens and dozens of cisterns in Jerusalem underneath the Temple Mount because of all the sacrificing kind of stuff that they were doing. And one of, just one of these dozens of cisterns that they have found can hold somewhere, it's estimated, between two and three million gallons of water. Now, in a land that is parched, a land that is always desperate for water, you realize that in the rainy seasons, you want to collect as much water as possible, store it up so that you can endure through the dry seasons. And so what they would do is they would, in this, a lot of the ground is limestone, so they would go in and they would dig out, by the sweat of their own brow, these massive cisterns. And they would mix a little of the limestone with uh, this other concoction stuff, and they create this lime paste where they would line the walls and actually keep the water in. It's kind of like this waterproofing. The problem is it doesn't hold all the time. And if you get a crack in the wall, your water will seep out. The, the other problem with cisterns is that it's always stale water. A lot of times they put oil, like olive oil, at the top to keep the bugs out and all that kind of stuff, the, the scum off the top. And so when you reach down in the water, they move the, move the oil, then pull up the water. But you realize that dead animals would fall on this stuff. There'd be bugs. It can get scummy. And therefore, you can actually get sick through your broken or through your cistern water. So ponder what God is saying here. He says, here I am, a fountain of living water. It's endless water. It's an endless aquifer. It's always fresh. It's always clean. It's always available to you. But what have you done? You have rejected me. And in the sweat of your own brow, think about this, you have wasted more water, your own sweat, to dig out something in your own strength, in your own independence, in your own pride, in your own self-sourcing. You have dug out your own cistern so that you can fill it with water. But God says there's a problem. Not only have you wasted water digging out your own cistern, but your cistern has a crack in it. It's broken and it will hold no water. Do you realize that every time that we turn to idolatry, every time that we put something in our life 
in a position above God, it's actually a broken cistern. That, that we are trying to cater our lives and build our lives around something that will not endure. It cannot last. In fact, it will get scummy. Dead animals will fall in it, and you'll probably get sick and die. If not, it's still a broken cistern. The water is not going to remain. Why on earth would you take all that time and all that labor and all that pride and aim it in one direction so that you can do something outside of God so that you can feel good about yourself when he makes himself available to you as the fountain of living waters? Do you realize that you have a source of life available to you? Do you realize that you have an endless aquifer endless resource, endless life and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. His name is Jesus. He is the fountain of living waters. And he has made himself available to us saying, hey, take as much as you want. There's no limit to this thing. It is always available. It'll never run dry. So why on why on earth, in our arrogance, in, in our pride, in our foolishness, why, why would we spurn what God has made available to us? And why would we turn over here to our self-attempt at trying to produce something that will never endure or last? And yet, do you realize we do this all the time? <clears throat> because we turn to our idols. Could I encourage all of us to quit turning to broken cisterns and instead find our life, find our joy, find our satisfaction in the fountain of living waters. His name is Jesus. I love this quote by Vance Havner in, in his sermon, A Call to Repentance. Vance Havner said it this way. He says, the last word of Jesus to the church wasn't the Great Commission. So pause right there. You realize that Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And in Matthew 28, Matthew records that he gives the Great Commission. Luke records in Acts 1-8 that he gives the, hey, remain in Jerusalem and you'll receive power on high and you'll be witnesses, right? It's this, this idea of the Great Commission. That's the last word of Jesus, isn't it? Well, it was before he ascended. However, strangely, we have some letters from Jesus. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus wrote some letters to the church. And the common theme in every single one of those letters is, so let me reread the Vance Hadmer quote again. The last word of Jesus to the church wasn't the Great Commission, but repent. That's actually a really sad thought. That the last word we actually have from Jesus, recorded in Scripture, is repent. Now, we know in the end of the book of Revelation, Right? There are some great statements of Christ that are coming. But do you realize that in the days in which we live, Christ has actually called us to repent? Which means something has taken place. I've been using this title, Soul Drift. And the imagery for me, I was trying to figure out a good name for this whole series. And the thought I had was, well, you know, it's like being on a beach. I don't know if you've ever gone to the ocean. But if you ever go to the ocean, there's this weird thing that can happen on occasion. Uh, you, you go out and you start bobbing right in the waves, and it's kind of fun. And if you're not paying attention, the tidal drifts 
will cause you to move out further and further in the ocean. And I don't know if you've ever had this, you're like on a boogie board or a tube or you're just, you know, you're just bobbing along and you're just kicking, kicking around and you're just enjoying the fellowship and the fun. You suddenly go, okay, well, we should probably return back to the beach. And you turn around and you realize the beach is like now a mile away. And you're like, um, I have a problem. Because now I've been treading water or whatever it is, and now I've got to fight against the tide and get back to the beach so I don't die. It might be a little dramatic, but you, know, you, you, you understand. Do you realize our souls have the same propensity? That if we don't keep our eye on the shore, if we don't keep ourselves firmly in place in Christ, there is this easy propensity for our souls to drift. And we drift toward the things like idolatry and adultery and the stuff of this world. Was it John that says it was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the cares of the world, the things of the world? Pride of life, that one. <laughs> that it's so easy for us to, if we're not focused, for our souls to drift. Listen to what Jesus says to one particular church. In the seven churches that he writes and that John records in Revelation 2 and 3, this to me is one of the most scary. Obviously, the lady to see a one where he says, you're, you know, if you're not hot or cold, right, I'll just spew you out of my mouth. That one's a pretty scary one too. But this is the one that I keep coming back to, and partly it's because I spent so much time in the book of Ephesians. But, but let's, look, look at this statement. Jesus says in Revelation 2, 4, to the church in Ephesus, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You would think that if you are wrapped up in relationship and intimacy, why would you ever drift from that? And yet, what you actually see in the church of Ephesus is that they had something incredible. And yet, strangely, they drifted. The city of Ephesus was one of the, I think they said it's the second biggest city in the ancient Roman world. Rome obviously would be the biggest. Ephesus is a good uh, option for number two. It was a deep seawater port in modern-day Turkey. It was this massive city. Let me just give you a few statistics here. The city population is estimated somewhere between 250 and 350,000 people. This is a major city. This is a massive place of commerce and industry, of arts, of, I mean, this was like New York City on, you know, in the ancient days. I mean, this, this was the place to be. This is where all the, all the major trade routes were coming through, and this was a very strategic location for Paul to minister. And what you see is that in his missionary journey, he stayed there somewhere between two and a half and three years or so, and it was roughly the years between 53 to 56 AD. And while Paul was there, think about this, there was such a movement of God that the church was estimated to be right around 100,000 people with about 6,000 home churches. <laughs> that is huge. So could you, could you imagine, here's Paul, and he starts to minister in this city, and if you remember, by the time that he left the city, and when they were you know, having this big uproar, do you realize that one of the accusations against Paul is that literally what he was doing has caused all of Asia to have heard the gospel, like all of Turkey. That because this was a strategic trade route, this, this major crossroads, that, you know, of course, people would be coming in here for trade, they would get the gospel, and then they would carry it around wherever they were going and trade. 
Uh, you, you turn to like Acts chapter 17, verse 6, and here's this guy by the name of Jason who is brought in and accused. And the, the, the accusers say, here's his crime. He's one of those guys that turned the world upside down. Paul was making a huge difference in this major city. And think about this. About a third of the city were Christians. This was a pagan world with a whole bunch of perverseness and a whole bunch of just twistedness as pagans, and yet they were gaining Christ. They were, they were accepting Christ, and a third of the city were Christians. What if a third of your city became Christians? I mean, that would change the city. Things would start shutting down. People, I mean, this, this thing was just a wildfire. So that was right around the 53 to 56. As Paul was finishing that missionary journey, he met with the Ephesian elders, right? He didn't want to go into Ephesus because he realized, if I go to, into Ephesus, I'm never leaving. You know, there's, there's 100,000 Christians, 6,000 home churches. They all want to like, hey, come over. We have a special meeting. Come and speak, right? And so he just gathers the Ephesian elders, and he gives them a commission. Now think about this. God is stirring. God is moving. God is doing some incredible things. In fact, if you read the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is this great exhortation of the glory and the richness of Christ and what God has done in his body, the church. And they are thriving as a body. But Paul foresaw something. He's looking ahead saying, okay, I'm a little concerned. So right around 56 AD, when Paul's meeting with these Ephesian elders, listen to what he says. I'm just going to give you a clip of this from Acts chapter 20. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian elders. He says, you, know, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, and Asia is not talking like China, it, it's talking like modern day Turkey that was considered Asia of his day, Asia Minor. So he says, you knew from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the entire time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, and how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly, and from house to house. Think about this. There were 6,000 house churches. And he was just popping around house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he drops down in verse 27 and says, And I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And then here's his warning. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among even your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul says, look, I'm recognizing something. That there is going to be a propensity for you guys to drift. That people are going to come in and try to distract. People are going to come in and try to cause chaos. And Paul is encouraging the Ephesian elders, don't allow it to happen. Stand guard. Be aware. Don't drift from the very things that I've taught you. And yet, that's what we see happening. So this is roughly 40 years later. right? We're going from about 56 AD to 92 AD. And at least that's a good guess of when John is writing the book of Revelation. 
And so you have Jesus speaking to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So here is Asia Minor, again, modern-day Turkey, where God has radically turned the world upside down. Where all these great movements of God have taken place. And 35, 40 years later, Jesus looks at this same church and he says, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Okay, you might still be attending church. You might still be doing all the activities. You might still be doing all the wonderful things. Yay, yay, yay. But it's all legalism. It's all self-discipline. It's all, it's, it's become a social club. Which is what we're in the middle of, folks. Well, we have all these churches and Hey, I attend every Sunday, and I, I, hey, I pay the preacher $50, and I, I never miss a Sunday, and I teach Sunday school, and you can go down through the list. But do you realize the same issue that Jesus had with Ephesus back in his day? What would he say about our church today? Well, yeah, you, you guys are doing the thing, and you guys are meeting together, and you guys are singing songs, and you guys are having the sermons, and you guys got podcasts, and you got... But where's your heart? And Jesus looked at the early Ephesians church only 40 years after a great movement and says, look, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. It doesn't mean that they left the church. He's writing to the church. But those who are in the church have grown cold and stale. That they have, Yeah, they're doing the actions, and yeah, they, they got the activities, and, and yeah, they look really spiritual on the outside, and yet on the inside they are dead. And that's what he says to the Laodicean church. Look, I wish you were hot or cold, but... And of course, he's using cultural things because there was hot springs that would flow down and there was this cold thing that would come up and they would mix together in the city of Laodicea and the water of Laodicea was lukewarm. He's like, look, it's just like your water. And just as you don't like lukewater, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Why? Because you're not fully with me. That you're, you're tipping your hat and you're doing the actions and you're saying, rah, 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 yay, Jesus. And yet, where's your heart? It's far from me. Can I ask us in this generation? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not, I'm not asking, are you, do you do spiritual activities? I'm not saying you pray before your meals. I'm asking, what's your first love? And it's really easy to give the lip service. Well, it's Jesus. Yeah, yeah, but how do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What do you talk about? Because those things tend to reveal our priorities in our life more than anything else. Your time, your money, and what you talk about. And if you look at your life and you realize, well, you know, at least I go to church on Sundays, sometimes Wednesday night prayer meetings, and that's the only time you, you spend with Jesus, you realize that's probably saying something about the fact that your first love is not jesus have you if jesus came to you would he have to say this to you look i have this against you you've lost your first love it's become duty you're just sticking around because that's you don't want to go to hell but there's no passion there's no relationship there's there's no intimacy So that was around 92 AD. By the time you get to 135, 
somewhere in the early 100s, you have this guy by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. And we know that he died right around 135 to 140 AD. So when he wrote this, I, I'm not fully sure, but, but my guess is it was probably in the early 100s. Uh, Ignatius was a friend of Polycarp, if you know that name from Christian martyrdom. He was also a disciple with Polycarp of the disciple John the Apostle. Could you imagine being a disciple of John the Apostle? Uh, John spent his final years in Ephesus, leading the Ephesus church. And Ignatius became an elder in Ephesus. And sometime before he died, he wrote a 29-page letter reminding the Ephesians of Paul and, Je- uh, and Jesus' words. He was noticing a soul drift. And he says, we cannot forget what Paul has commanded us, what he exhorted us as uh, in, in the eldership. Remember that back in 56? Yeah, he told us, don't drift. Remember Jesus in, in John's revelation? How Jesus said, I have this against you, that you've left your first love. So Ignatius is writing this exhortation to the church in Ephesus saying, look, repent. So that was in the early 100s. And what is really sad is in archaeology, they have found a journal dated somewhere right around 200 AD. And in the journal, it states that there is no evidence of Christianity in the city of Ephesus. So could you imagine, in the days of Paul, around you know, the 50s AD, you have a massive, bustling city where about a third of the city are believers. And he gives a warning, don't drift. 35, 40 years later, Jesus says, look, you're drifting. Return to your first love. Fast forward you know, another dozen years or so, and here's Ignatius saying, guys, repent. And 100 years later, there's no evidence of believers in the city. Do you realize how easy it is to drift? Do you realize how easy it is for America to be swept in darkness and not be a Christian nation? Do you realize how easy it would be for our world just to... But let's not talk about them. Let's talk about us. Have you lost your first love? Have you been entertaining idolatry and adultery with the things of this world? Even good religious things, but yet not have a love for Jesus? A genuine, passionate, intimate love for Jesus? Because that is our heart's greatest longing. Our hearts long for Jesus, and yet we are trying to replace him with all this garbly gook of culture. And yeah, it gives a satisfaction in a, in a momentary sense, but it never satisfies the longing of our souls. We need Jesus. Our churches need Jesus. Our cities need Jesus. Our country desperately needs Jesus. Our world has a desperate cry for Jesus. Jesus said, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Just as a final exhortation, I'm going to read you two Old Testament passages. Joel 2.13 says, Rend your heart, 
not your garments. Do you realize if you're going to tear something up, if you see the travesty of what's going on around you, don't rip your shirt. Rip your heart. Bleed in the heart. Mourn in the heart. Repent. Rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God. Think about this. Return. Repent. Why? Get this. Because our God is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness, hesed, and relenting of evil. Do you know why you should repent? Do you know why we should return to our first love? Because he's a good good God. Ezekiel 33:11 says this, as I live declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Do you know what God's heart is? God's longing is for us to repent. God's longing is for us to turn to him and allow him to be our heart's greatest longing. I am deeply encouraged about the days in which we live. Okay, I'm discouraged, and it is really dark, and it is rather depressing. But do you realize that the early church, <clears throat> before they drifted, when their hearts were aflame for Jesus, that they marched into their world, into a world of incredible darkness, a world that is strangely familiar to our days, and turn their world upside down in a matter of years. Do you realize it is still possible in our generation for revival to take place and for God to turn this world upside down, inside out? It is fully possible. And if they could do it in a matter of decades, do you realize with all the technology and the transportation options that we have, we should be able to do it far quicker. But the only way that the world will turn upside down is if our lives are turned upside down. It needs to start here with us. So can I ask you, have you left your first love? Have you been bobbing along and enjoying the waves to the extent that you finally look back at where we're supposed to be on the beach and you realize, I've actually drifted. I've actually been pulled out to sea. I actually have gotten distracted by the world around me and and though I may not have intended it to happen, I, I, have, I have been pulled. Do you know what God actually wants from us in those moments? To repent. To seek his face. To turn from our wicked ways. To allow him to pull us back onto the shore. To remain fixated upon him. Allow him to be the preeminent one, the center, the first place. That preeminence. That, that he will be preeminent in our lives and that we would love him with all that we are and all that we have. Pray with me. Oh Lord, our, our days, these days desperately need you. Lord, our, our families, our, our churches, our communities, our nation, our world desperately, desperately needs you. But Lord, none of that's ever going to change unless we get desperate for you. 
Lord, could, could you be the full satisfaction of our heart's greatest longing? Would you be preeminent? Would you have first place? Would you just, would you be the totality? Would you be the focus? Would you be the delight? Would you just be the, the wow of our lives? And Lord, may it never be said of us, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Lord, would you be our first love? Would you grow? Would you increase? Would you expand? Will you just get better and better and better? And Lord, don't let this thing grow stale. Don't let this thing just become passive. Lord, could we seek after you? And would you just increase? And will you just get better? And would you just, and somehow this, our love that we have for you, may it be total and exclusive, overwhelming, passionate devotion with you. That we love you with all that we are and all that we have. Lord, forgive us of our idolatry. Forgive us of our adultery. Forgive us of our obsessions of anything and everything that's not of you. And Lord, as we've often prayed, Lord, would you put your finger on anything in our lives that, that should not be there and would you radically change and transform because the solution to our problem is you. The great need of our life is you. So Lord, will you take the reality of the cross and the, the amazing, wonderful truth of the gospel and would you let it sink deep into our lives and Lord, I pray that our relationship with you would not merely be factual, it would not merely just be informational. May it be intimate. May it be experiential. Lord, we want to know you, not know about you. We want to know you. We want to get wrapped up in relationship with you. A relationship that just grows and increases and expands and gets better as time goes on. Lord, if, if our lives have been drifting, even if it's a mere inch, would you put your finger on that? Would you woo our hearts? Would you, would you bring us to a place of repentance? Would you radically, overwhelmingly change our lives? Would you give us a burn for you? And then would you let that bubble forth in such a way that it radically changed the world around us? Lord, do not let us go to broken cisterns. Do not let us, in our own pride, build something for ourselves at our own effort and talent and ability and wisdom. Lord, let us walk in a, an abiding, surrendered dependence and just continually drink from the fountain of living waters known as you. I'm just going to give you all the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.